Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Organisational psychologist Amantha Imber has asked some of the world's most successful people how they use their time productively, and distilled their advice into tips and tricks we can all make use of. That's the focus of her new book, TimeWise, which has become an instant bestseller. She sat down with Nicole Wong to tell us more. So, to begin, I guess, the idea of giving time wisely... And this idea of time itself, it's really connected to the idea of giving and how much we can give. So that's already hard enough for people like people pleasers, as you say, like you or like me. But what if we factored in certain social demographics that are sometimes expected to give more, perhaps? Yeah, and I think that it's fair to include women in that group. And I heard some interesting research that, that I didn't include in the book, but it's um, something I came across later, which I learned from, it, it came from a researcher from Carnegie Mellon University, and she was looking at who was more likely to say yes to non-promotable tasks in the workplace. So it was a researcher called Linda Babcock. And she found that women are more likely to say yes to those sorts of non-promotable tasks. So they're the things that are just good citizenship, like taking minutes in a meeting or organizing the work Christmas party or, you know, collecting money to chip in for someone's birthday present, those sorts of things. But they're not the sort of things that progress our careers. And what Linda and her colleagues decided to do after discovering this is they decided to start a no club. And basically the idea behind a no club, Linda enlisted a couple of other colleagues who were at different business schools. And whenever an opportunity came on to sort of came, you know, onto Linda's desk, she, and that she wasn't sure whether she should say yes or no to, she would run it by her no club. And (laughs) they could more objectively go, yeah, that's really not going to progress your career, Linda. So I think you should say no rather than be a people pleaser, which a lot of women like to do. So I um I love this idea of a no club. I I, I learned it after um time wise had hit the printing press, but it's something that I've uh, yeah I've, I've been trying to incorporate into my own life because I yes definitely it's been a learning curve getting better at saying no. It is really really difficult to say no, especially if it's if you feel like. You want to be you know, a good person or a helpful person. Well, what, what is a good way to say no? And do you think it gets easier if the more you say it? For me, what I try to do is I try to give a quick no, which I think is counterintuitive. A lot of people sit on no's because they, I don't know, like sort of have this belief that, well, if they take a little bit longer to say no, it won't feel as harsh. But I know myself <laughs> when I'm asking people for things, like whether it, you know, be to 
be a guest on my How I Work podcast, I really appreciate a quick answer, even if it's a no, because that saves me the time of chasing and following up and wondering. So whenever I'm asked about something, I always try to give a quick no and I try to be honest because I find if I'm honest, it's harder to kind of come back and go, oh, yeah, but could you make an exception? And I also like framing things in terms of saying I don't instead of I can't. Like, for example, I, I do a lot of keynote speaking. And in the past, I've, I've done a few keynotes at, at, at dinner and evening events where, you know, that, that are quite alcohol fueled. And I, walk, I used to walk away from every one of those dinner events going, I'm never going to speak at a dinner event again. They just want to drink and they don't want to listen and learn. So it's, you know, it's a bad use of the event organizer's budget and it's a bad use of my time. And so now when I'm asked to speak at those events, instead of saying, oh, I, I can't really do that. The date doesn't work. I just say, I don't do dinners. And you can't argue with that. So there's some That's other true. things I think of when I say no. One of the things that, that I would say like, oh, I don't do is like, I don't, for example, I tell myself I, I don't check emails after my work hours. But somehow it's difficult even for me to keep to that. And do, do you find it's something similar with, for example, like checking emails, checking your 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 company's social media after hours. I do. And I feel like the best approach to this, and, and certainly my, my approach is informed by what I've learned in the research, is to stop relying on willpower. Because a lot of people say, oh, I shouldn't check email after hours. I should set better boundaries. I should do this. I should do that. But it's really hard because most of us have our email app on our phone and most of us have our phone within half a meter of our body at every given waking hour, which makes it hard to, to apply willpower. And, and willpower is a, a limited resource and we don't want to keep dipping into it. So for me, I try to think about what are the barriers that I can put in the way to make it really hard to do the behavior that I'm trying not to do. So in the case of email, I know that if I've got the email app downloaded onto my phone, which I rarely do, but sometimes I do, like if I need to access a ticket for an event that's been emailed from, you know, to me, for example, I, I will have it on my phone. But if I've got email on my phone, I will check email very regularly and always out of hours. But if I delete the app, I don't check email after hours because that would involve going upstairs to my iMac and logging onto my computer and opening up my email software and checking email. And and that's annoying. That's a, an annoying enough barrier in the way to make me not do the behavior I'm trying not to do. So I think about what's a barrier that I can put in the way to make it hard to do the thing I'm trying to stop doing. Firstly, that's amazing that you actually delete the email app from your phone. I think that's a really that's a really great strategy. What if with well, our phones are always around us and we just keep feeling it's almost like it has this kind of magnetism and we just drift towards it naturally? How do we keep ourselves from doing that? Even if it's not just work, if, if I'm doing if I'm in flow and then all of a sudden I think to myself, oh, maybe there's a maybe there's like a cat video on Instagram that I really want to see. <laughs> Well, I I dedicate quite a few chapters to this in TimeWise about how can we make it easier to stay away from our phone. And 
One of my favourite strategies comes from Professor Adam Alter, who's um, at the Stern School of Business at NYU. And something that occurred to him, and as I just mentioned, like he was thinking about where is his mobile phone at every waking hour of the day? And he realised that there was barely a minute of the day, or night for that matter, where his phone wasn't within arm's reach. And if your phone is within reach, it's really easy to just grab it and check it. And so what Adam started to do is to deliberately put his phone in a different room so that he would have to physically walk to get his phone at any given point during the day. So, for example, when he worked from home, he would never bring his phone into his home office. He might leave it in the kitchen or something like that. Likewise, he'd never sleep with his phone on his bedside table. He would always charge it in a different room. So by making sure that your phone is not within arm's reach, it becomes so much easier to, to, to really live by the rule that you're not going to be ruled by your phone. That is very true. <laughs> I think just to have feeling that even if it's just put farther away, all of a sudden we hear it buzz and we think, maybe, maybe I don't need to check that actually. <laughs> um, and it's a good thing that you're talking about you know, working at home because that has become a, well, increasingly you know, more advanced options for working at home. A lot of companies I see now have at least two to three days where you can do that, if not come all the days. So when that comes to working at home, it's really tricky to draw boundaries between your, your office and your and, and your home. So say, say in this in this kind of cost of living crisis and where a lot of young people especially can't afford to be in a, in a place where they have multiple rooms, how would you advise them to, to draw those boundaries if they live in, in like a studio? Yeah, gosh, it's so, it's so hard when your office is your bedroom and your kitchen and your bathroom's just kind of there as well. Really, really challenging. So instead of thinking about physical boundaries, which are really hard when you're living in a small space and everything you do in your life is in that small space. I like to think about what are the psychological barriers or, or bookends that you can put in your day. So there's a shutdown ritual. Like just like, like we would shut down our computer for the day, it's really important that we also shut down our brain from work and just and, and provide that bookend, that closure to the day's work because it makes it much easier to just stay out of your work stuff in the evening and have a life. So a strategy that we give to a lot of our clients and we've had really great success in terms of increasing not only productivity but also well-being is we get our clients at Inventium to, to write two sentences at the end of every day. So the first sentence we get them to write is, today I made progress on dot, dot, dot. And they write down what is something that they made progress on that matters to them, that's meaningful to them. Because we know from research from Professor Teresa Amabile at Harvard is that when we feel like we've made progress on meaningful projects, the things that really matter to us, that is the single biggest driver of engagement and motivation at work. The second sentence that we get people writing is, Tomorrow will be a great day if I can get X done or, you know, words to that effect. So thinking about what is one thing that you could do tomorrow that would make it a great day. And that then lets you start the following day with a sense of purpose and focus. So you're not just kind of procrastinating and 
faffing about going, oh, what will I do today? Instead, you're like, okay, this is the thing that I'm going to do today. Obviously, there'll be other things, but what is like the main thing? So just writing those two sentences at the end of the day, you know, it'll take you all of three or four minutes. Today, I made progress on and if I get X done tomorrow, it will be a great day is a really great way to just bookend your day and set that clear boundary at the end of your work day and, you know, the start of your evening. I think that's also a great way to not, because sometimes we just have bad days at work and it's it's hard not to have that not only drag into our after work hours, but also then drag into the next day as well. So when on days when that is like particularly heavier, when you were really struggling with just a, a, like really like a string of bad days at work, how do you motivate yourself more in addition to the strategy that you were just telling me about? For me, like it comes back to thinking about why am I doing what I am doing? And I remember hearing about this strategy from one of the female entrepreneurs that I interviewed for TimeWise. Um, her name's Kate Morris, and she is the co-founder of Adore Beauty, which is the biggest online beauty retailer here in Australia. Um, it's also global. And she was in the process of uh, listing Adore Beauty on the stock exchange here in Australia. And it was an intense process. And she was in sort of 12 hours every day of back-to-back Zoom meetings, as well as dealing with Melbourne's lockdown, which was over 250 days, I think one of the world's longest. And she wrote her purpose, which was about making history in terms of being the biggest company that was female founded and had a female CEO to list on the Australian Stock Exchange. So making history was was her kind of reason for doing this and pushing herself so hard. And she wrote that on a post-it note, stuck it on her computer. And when she was in these back-to-back Zoom meetings every single day for weeks on end, she would always bring it back to that purpose and that would give her energy. And for me, I find I'm the same. Like it can be really easy to just get lost in the weeds of of what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I'm working on uh, a new book at the moment and I'm on a really tight deadline from the publisher. And, and, and plus I'm juggling a bunch of other projects. And for me on the days where I'm like, oh, I, I, I just, I don't have any words left in me. It's really just bringing it back to why am I writing this book? What's the impact that I'm trying to have in this world? And so That is how I'm motivated. And it doesn't work every day, but it certainly works a lot of the time. Say, if you were, say, 10 years ago, if you would have have known the strategy already, what post-it would you have? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Look, I think for, for me, like why I became an organizational psychologist was, you know, I think about how much time we spend at work, in our adult lives. It's about a third of our waking hours for for adults. And I feel like what, you know, but for me, what better use is there of my skills than to help make that huge amount of time more impactful, more meaningful, and just more joyful for people. So that's the sort of stuff that I think about at a really general level and that I'd put on a post-it note. That that is great, I think. I think we would all aspire towards that. How do we bring more joy to, to people? And and what about for people who are just starting out their careers? And when they look at that post-it note, they just feel so much anxiety. They think, I have absolutely no idea what I want to do. <laughs> oh, look, I I think, you know, in those early years, 
It's like, don't feel like you have to have all the answers. And, you know, we were talking before about saying no, but I think in those early years, it is saying yes. And it's like, I remember I heard this advice from a guest on how I work and she was, um, Oh, she, she'd risen to be the CEO of a very large company here in Australia. And she was talking about, you know, what she sometimes sees with people that are earlier in their career is that they sort of see some jobs as kind of beneath them. But she's like, it was never like that for me. Like, you know, if I was asked to photocopy something, I was going to be the world's best photocopier. If I was asked to get someone a coffee, I was going to nail that coffee order and find the best coffee in town. So I, I think it, you know, it really is just kind of throwing yourself into everything and not seeing anything as beneath you and instead seeing anything that you're asked to do as an opportunity to shine. But I think also being proactive. Like I think a lot of people early in their career are really fast to identify problems, whether that be problems with the workplace, you know, grumbles about clients or customers that you're working with, problems with your manager, with your coworkers. But if you're coming to someone at work with a problem, always pair it with a solution. I feel like so few people do that and the people that do do that really stand out. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p, with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That is that is really great advice, and I, I know that all, all the young listeners to this podcast will be very grateful for that. Um, there is something that, uh, that I really want to ask you about, which is about chronotypes. We, we hear a lot more about the importance of chronotypes now, and I remember even just a few weeks ago, I had no idea what, what that word meant. So can you tell us a little bit about, firstly, what, what chronotypes are? So chronotypes are basically about the peaks and troughs in our energy over a 24-hour period. Broadly speaking, uh, there are three types of chronotypes. So there's larks, who are stereotypical morning people. So if you wake at sort of 5 or 6 a.m. naturally without an alarm, you're probably a lark. 
and, and that represents about sort of 16 to 17% of the population. Then at the other end of the spectrum, we have owls who are evening types. So owls come to life at night. They do their best work and best thinking when most workplaces and schools are closed. And owls represent about one in five people. And then everyone else is a middle bird. So they sort of run on the pattern of a lark, but just delayed by an hour or two. So if you wake at about sort of 7 a.m., give or take an hour or half an hour, if that's sort of your natural wake time, you're probably a middle bird. And so middle birds and larks do their best work in the morning before lunch. So it sort of it takes a couple of hours for all of us to to reach um, about 80% of our um, cognitive capacity after we wake up. Uh, and so after that first couple of hours of kind of getting with the day, that's when we're in our peak. And so for likes and middle birds, schedule your, your sort of most deep focus requiring work before lunch. But for owls, you should be doing it in the late afternoon or evening or even into the night. So when I think about chronotypes, I think about how can you proactively structure your day so that your hard work is in line with your cognitive or energetic peak, if you like. That is that is really good to know. And it makes me it makes me think about what what, what chronotype I, I could be. And it feels like it perhaps when I was younger, when I was in uni, it, it felt like perhaps the pressures made us all owls. Um, but <laughs> Does that does that change as the phases in our life differ? Like, what if we, what if, for example, we are very much a, a lark or a middle bird, and then we are building a family, and then that all of a sudden it is put into spin? Or if we're working a job with variable shifts, our chronotype absolutely changes. So it's largely genetically predetermined, but when we are very young, small small children are typically quite larkish. They're up very early. My my daughter was up particularly early this morning, although blamed it on <laughs> our dog being up early, but I think that was at about 20 to 6 in the morning. Um, it's been a long day. But, but normally, you know, she's sort of up more like at 6.30 a.m., a, a more decent hour in this household. And then as we progress into our teenage years, we become more owl-like. So teenagers like to stay up late and I know that there's been studies that have looked at you know what if you delay the start of school for high school by even half an hour or an hour teenagers perform significantly better on academic tasks and then as we get into our sort of like 20s 30s 40s we level out in terms of where we're genetically predisposed to be and as we you know sort of head into older age like in our 60s and 70s we become more larkish more more morning types so it does change and then also extraneous circumstances happen like we have a child or we change jobs or we become a shift worker and all those sorts of things can kind of mess with your natural chronotype. So you might be living a life that's actually working against your natural chronotype, which is going to make things feel harder. And you're probably going to feel more tired a lot of the time. So ideally where we can, we want to design a life that is in line with our chronotype. It's easier said than done, but that is the sort of the ideal thing to aim for. I think if 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 someone is in that situation where they're just working against it, that's when that post-it note strategy would really <laughs> come into hand. Um, they'll be like, "I am I am working towards this." <laughs> um, another thing about starting new jobs when or starting a new phase in life, I feel like that can sometimes be a really destabilizing sensation. 
And when, when we are accompanied with this destabilizing sensation, often what happens is that we feel like we're not up to the task or that we'll never be up to the task. So can you tell us a little bit more about how one could deal with that and if that feeling is always a bad thing? Mm. Yeah, like in, I find imposter syndrome a really interesting thing. I mean, so much has been written and said about it over the last few years and and I do dedicate a few sort of short chapters to imposter syndrome in, in time-wise. And I remember one of the favourite thing, my favourite things that I've heard said about imposter syndrome comes from Abby Jacobson, who some people might know as the, as the, as the co-creator and star and sort of force behind Broad City, one of my favourite comedy shows. And I remember Abby saying to me on, on the How I Work podcast that she still feels like nervous before big events, like if she's speaking on a panel or if she's about to shoot a scene for Broad City, um, you know, which uh, sadly doesn't doesn't run anymore, but at the time she'll still feel those nerves. And she said to me, like she finds the nerves reassuring because it says to her that she still cares. Like she doesn't want to be in a place where she's like, yeah, I got this. I've got nothing to worry about because – you know, what's there to learn when you feel like that? So for her, imposter syndrome was a really healthy feeling and and kind of a check that she's still doing things that challenge her. So, you know, I mean, I, I know I used to experience imposter syndrome a lot earlier in my career and I don't know, I'm 45 now, so I don't know if that makes me mid-career or I've got no idea. But, but like, you know, th- this book that I'm writing at the moment, I... I, you know, I've been feeling such intense imposter syndrome while well, I've been writing it because it's a completely new area in many ways for me. And just kind of like thinking, like, you know, did my publisher make a mistake when they offered me this book deal? Do they, do they realize that, like, I don't know, I don't know the answers and I'm trying to find them as I'm writing and researching. But it's something that I still relate to. But it's like, well, I'm also glad that I'm experiencing that because I think it's helpful in terms of learning and growing. I I definitely agree. And at least from reading time-wise, I can say that your publishers are definitely not making a mistake <laughs> in signing your book deal. Um, when Because that's a fine line when you're between feeling, okay, good that I, that I feel this kind of nervousness, it means that I really care about something, and then having it be just completely derailing what we want to do. So at what point would you say when you have to check yourself and be like, okay, this is, this is getting out of hand? that's an interesting question look I think where it's getting in the way of progress like I think you just have to acknowledge to yourself imposter syndrome is really normal we all experience it and if people say they haven't they're just lying or they're a complete narcissist and have quite maybe um flawed opinions of themselves um but it's like we've all been there so Yes, you might be feeling like an imposter, but that's fine. Like you got to start somewhere and what matters is that you really embrace the learning and embrace the challenge so that you can come out like with more skills, with more competence, with more, you know, mastery in in the area that you're focusing in. And I I really I wish that you know more people would have that that mindset because it can be so frightening and I think that what what a lot of people do, and what I definitely have done, is that when I feel like an imposter, 
I put off doing something. I just go like, maybe kind of like the, with answering no, but with like, you know, with my own work, I go like, maybe if I do it later, <laughs> then it will not be so scary anymore, which of course never happens. So could you, could you tell us a bit about how, how we would deal with pushing our work back and procrastinating on what we actually have to do? Yeah, yeah. And look, it's, it's funny what you were just saying there, and this doesn't answer your question, but like in, in terms of, you know, like, Facing our fears and the things that are worrying us or stressing us out. One of my favorite pieces of advice that I wrote about in TimeWise was about facing our fears because often, you know, we think to ourselves, like, what's the worst that could happen? Like, I could fail. I could be humiliated in front of all these people, you know, through making this presentation that I know nothing about or whatever the the kind of the stress might be. But I, I learned this strategy in terms of the power of flipping that and instead of going, what's the worst that could happen? Asking yourself, what's the best thing that could happen from this situation? And I think flipping that is a really great way to remove yourself from that pit of stress and imposter syndrome-ness to actually focusing on the possibilities. But I digress from procrastination. What what can I share in terms of procrastination? I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of pursue that, that digression a little bit, when was there, there was an instance when you, when you really had to ask yourself that question and you felt like that change in, in mindset was really helpful? Hmm. Just trying to think about the last time. Like I, I've definitely asked myself that question with the book that I'm working on, which, you know, which is all about health and how can we improve our health? And how can we actually make that change stick? Because most of us are really bad at making changes that actually stick when it comes to our health. And, you know, I definitely know what the worst is that can happen. I can write a rubbish book that is, you know, criticised and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the best that could happen is that maybe, like, through taking on the advice in the book, I can you know, save someone from having a major health crisis. Maybe I can extend their lives for a few years so they've got, you know, more precious time to spend with their family. Maybe I can just make someone feel better on a day-to-day basis, have more energy and be able to participate in life more fully. And so like that, that's an example definitely in recent times where I have like had to do a reframe because of that imposter syndrome and that sort of feeling of just being stuck in my own self-doubt you know, which I found very useful to do to just help me get back on track and refocus on the task at hand. I think I think that is that is great, and and if anything, that goal of that that purpose of of wanting to help someone lead a healthier life where they can ha- not even just because in in this book in Timewise you're helping people use time more wisely, but you can give them a bit more time too in the way that they lead their lives. That is perhaps the best way that we can use our time (laughs) wisely as well. Um, So I want to uh, kind of, for this last part of our our conversation, talk a bit about after work hours and why, for example, we feel this need to be always listening to podcasts or looking up news and keeping quote unquote up to date with everything, even when we technically have nothing left to do in the day. (laughs) <laughs> it is it's it's an addiction it's like a lot of us feel very uncomfortable doing nothing 
and God forbid we'd be bored. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport. I've loved, like, all of his books, but, um, you know, it makes me think of digital minimalism and, and I included a bit from, from one of the times I interviewed Cal on how I work in TimeWise where he talked about solitude deprivation and how it's just so important that we make time during the day where we're not inputting stimulus into our brain because that's what a lot of our lives have become. Like if we're not talking to people or doing work or spending time with our family, chances are we're inputting stimulus into our brain, whether that be in the form of a podcast or social media or TV show, for example. And it just, it's like it doesn't give our brains room to breathe. I remember a few years ago after I read Digital Minimalism, I, I did an experiment in my life where I was thinking about how much time I was listening to podcasts during the week. And I was listening to podcasts whenever I exercised, which was about five hours a week. I was at the gym and on my commute to and, to and from the office back when I was commuting to an office. And that was another five hours. And so I said to myself, I'm going to cut back my podcast time by 50%. So for half the time of my commute, like on, on the time that I'm traveling from home to the city, and then for half of my workouts every week, I'm not going to put anything into my brain. I'm just going to be present, either with the movements I'm doing at the gym or just being present while I travel on the train into the city and just be with my thoughts. And I just like almost instantly, I remember the first day I did this, I was just hit with so much creative inspiration. It's like it had all just been blocked and suppressed with just all the stuff that I was putting into my brain because I thought that was productive to always have stuff going in. But when I stopped letting stuff in and I just gave my brain some peace, that was when it started to produce some like really great ideas and some great insights. So for me, that was a really powerful experience. And, you know, and, and I still try to do this to this day always make time for no stimulus as opposed to always consuming. That is, well, firstly, that's amazing with the, how the creative inspiration suddenly, it was as if it was, there was a dam and all of a sudden the, the floodgates were actually open. <laughs> and I, I wonder, because I, I was trying to do that yesterday. I thought to myself, okay, um, to you know, prepare for this conversation, I'm going to try to do that. And it was so difficult. It was so difficult. And this because I was having dinner alone. It was so difficult to just sit there and eat with, with nothing <laughs> coming in. <laughs> I thought to myself, am I, is this the best? I, I kept thinking, like, is this, maybe there's a better way to, to, to be doing something? Because this silence feels so loud. And do you, do you think that the way that, society is moving towards now or the way that work work culture is moving towards now does it does it pressure us to be always more productive and more up to date and just just more in general it seems it does it does and I'm so glad you tried that experiment while while you're having a meal and I do that too and I find it really difficult as well and it feels so unnatural like you really have to force yourself not to do it. Like I, I love reading while I'm having a meal if I'm on my own. And previously I'd like congratulate myself because it's like, what great multitasking. You can read your emails as well as eat your lunch with one <laughs> hand. But it's like, no, 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 no. That's not good. That is not good for re-energizing. You need to switch off, Amantha. So 
I'm glad that you tried it and I'm not surprised that you find it hard and I still find it hard, but it's just so valuable to do because we weren't designed to be on or be productive like every single minute of the day. And I feel like, you know, particularly like the the, the tech industry and the, the world in Silicon Valley, like really, I feel like did a lot of damage to putting forward this norm that like, you know, if you're not working a 16-hour day and on every minute of that day, then you're slack or you're lazy or you're not as productive as you could be. I mean, I think that that's rubbish. That's not how our brain was designed to work. And certainly there's research that that suggests that if we work more than 55 hours a week, we actually significantly increase our chance of cardiovascular disease and having a stroke. So it is in the best interest of our health to to cap our working hours for our health. And what's more important than that? That that is very true. And that is that's also very good to know. It, it's it's interesting how we often think about stress and how stress is just in our in our heads as if it doesn't have a, a real physical effect somewhere either immediately or somewhere down the line. So what would as a kind of final question, I think a lot of people are stressed. A lot of people are stressed because of work. What would you tell them to do, for example, right before they go to bed tonight? So perhaps tomorrow will be a bit better. So there's a great research study that I came across literally a few weeks ago where they, because like most people, if you're having trouble getting to bed, it's probably because that is the only time in the day where you're not pumping your brain with distractions. And it's like, finally, all those stresses and worries and ruminations have time to make themselves known. And so in this particular study, they had a group of people, they, they split the, the um, group into two. They had one group of people, they were asked to write a to-do list just for five minutes and think about what are all the tasks that they either didn't finish today and they have to do tomorrow or outstanding tasks that they have to do during the week. And so as specific as possible, write a to-do list. And then the other group were asked to write a kind of like a to-done list, like all the things that they had accomplished in the week. And what they found is that the group that did the to-do list for five minutes, all the tasks that they had to do for the rest of the week, they actually got to sleep a lot more quickly and had a better night's sleep. It's like their brain had kind of closed off all those loops that it was keeping open in terms of, I must remember to do that, or I'm worried about that, or what what do I do about that? But because they'd written it down, their brain was able to go, okay, we're good. We can sleep. We can relax now. So it's a really simple strategy. Just take five minutes with a pen and paper. Don't use your phone um, before you go to bed and write a to-do list. And the more specific you can get with the things that you have to do tomorrow or during the week, the more effective the strategy. That is an amazing strategy. And I will definitely try that. It's like, not now their phones. Otherwise we go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on in this conversation today. And I, I already learned so much from your book, Time Wise. And I learned even more from this conversation. It was, it was my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This episode starred Amantha Imber and was produced and presented by Nicole Wong. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, and our editor is John Doughty. Join us again next week when we'll meet superstar guru Vex King. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>